And I invite you, if you have your Bibles, to turn with me to Mark chapter 14. Mark chapter 14 is at the very top of page 903, if you're following along in the Bibles and the pew, pew rack in front of you this morning. Today's message is going to be a little bit different than usual. Instead of taking time to study and explain the specifics of the text that we are, we are reading today, I'm going to explore a theme that I believe this text raises. Brother David Hahn is going to come back next week and preach about the denial of Peter. And then the following week, we'll look at Jesus' prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. So as we stand this morning to read, I encourage you to consider Jesus as he is presented in these verses. He is fully God and fully man. Would you stand with me? Let's read this text together. I'll be reading from verse 27 to verse 36 from the Christian Standard Bible. This is the word of the Lord. Then Jesus said to them, All of you will fall away, because it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. Peter told him, Even if everyone falls away, I will not. Truly, I tell you, Jesus said to him, Today, this very night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he kept insisting, If I have to die with you, I will never deny you. And they all said the same thing. Then they came to a place named Gethsemane. And he told his disciples, Sit here while I pray. He took Peter, James, and John with him, and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. He said to them, I am deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and stay awake. He went a little farther, fell to the ground, and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you for standing in honor of the reading of it. You may be seated. Will you pray with me? Our great Heavenly Father, I pray this morning that we would come and behold the wondrous mystery of Jesus, fully God, fully man, sent for sinners like us. Lord, I pray in his name and for his sake this morning. Amen. I'd like to begin this morning by demonstrating the textual warrant for taking up this topic. What is in the text that leads me to the place that says it's okay to stop doing what we do usually, which is go verse by verse through a text and explain what the text says. Why am I taking up the theme of Jesus, fully God and fully man, and what warrants that from this text? So from the text we've read, first of all, we observe in verse 28 the supernatural knowledge of Jesus. He says to the disciples, after I have risen, I will go before you into uh, to Galilee. So Jesus demonstrates supernatural knowledge. Furthermore, we read how Jesus accurately predicted the denial of Peter in verse 30. Of course, if you've read ahead, 
which I would hope you have at some point, read in Mark's gospel, Peter does deny Jesus. So again, demonstrating supernatural knowledge. These are things only God could do. Another reason to consider Jesus fully God, fully man, came when we read verse 36. Jesus prayed for the Father to take the cup from him. Why is it that Jesus, being fully God, would pray to God the Father and ask for his long foreordained plan to be changed? What What's going on in this text? That's kind of some of the textual reasons for kind of taking up this topic of Jesus, fully God and fully man. It seems to me that now is as good a point in any as any in Mark's gospel. There are several places along the way that we could have taken up this topic. Let me just name a few of them. For example, in chapter 1, when the people of Capernaum were astonished at Jesus' teaching with authority, that he had the power to cast out demons, we could have taken up this topic. Or when the religious leaders were appalled at Jesus' claim to be able to forgive sins. Remember, they ask skeptically, who can forgive sins but what? God alone. There was the time in chapter 4 when Jesus calmed the wind and the waves. And the disciples asked in wonder, who then is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? The people of Jesus' hometown marveled at his wisdom and his miracles. They were perplexed because they said to themselves, isn't this the carpenter, the son of Mary and Joseph? Speaking of his humanity. Then in chapter 8, Jesus asks his disciples who the people think that he is and then who they believe that he is. And this would have been a great topic to bring up when we were in chapter 8. Or I could wait till the end of this chapter when Jesus is crucified He answers the high priest's question, Are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed One? With the simple affirmative, I am. So today's message would have been appropriate at a number of points along our journey in Mark's gospel. But I've chosen today as the opportunity to bring it up. But in addition to showing you the textual reasons in this chapter, I wanted to stop and also tell you about the practical necessity of this topic the practical necessity of studying this doctrine. It begins with understanding this. Every heresy the early church ever fought in the first several centuries of church history is said to be repeated in every single generation. Every heresy of church history is said to be fought in every generation. Satan will do anything he can to distort our view of Jesus Christ. Things that may seem newfangled or popular today are really just ancient heresies that rob Jesus of the glory that is truly due to his name. We're going to look at several heresies about Jesus in a few moments at the end of the message. But to give just one biblical example, John wrote a letter to early Christians that they should avoid the heresy of docetism. Docetism comes from the Greek word dakeo, which means to seem or to appear. There were some who were saying that Jesus only appeared to have human flesh. So John tells Christians in the beginning of his letter that he had actually seen Jesus, he had heard Jesus talk, and he had touched Jesus. He had seen and touched his flesh. Furthermore, he wrote in chapter 4 of 1 John, 
By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. Getting doctrine right about Jesus is absolutely crucial. And here's why. There can be no reconciliation between God and man apart from a Redeemer who is both totally God and totally man. There can be no reconciliation. Let me quote from a theologian of over a thousand years ago who once said this, quote, Salvation had to be achieved by God, for no one else could achieve it. Certainly men and women couldn't achieve it, for we are the ones who got ourselves into this trouble in the first place. We have done so by our rebellion against God's just law and decrees. Moreover, we have suffered from the effects of sin to such a degree that our will is bound. Therefore, we cannot even choose to please God, let alone actually please God. If we are to be saved, only God, who has both the will and the power to save, must save us. And yet, as though it were an apparent contradiction, salvation must also be achieved by man. Man is the one who wronged God and must therefore make the wrong right. And granted this state of affairs, salvation can be achieved only by one who is both God and man, namely Christ. Oh, dear friends, our eternal destiny depends on the truthfulness of the doctrine that Jesus is fully God and fully man. As an overseer, I am charged with the shepherding of souls of men and women, boys and girls. And dear friends, this doctrine is instrumental to your eternal destiny. You should pay attention today like eternity depends on it because it does. Now, to aid us this morning in speaking well of the person of Jesus Christ, I've chosen to introduce to you the Ligonier Statement on Christology. I ask that you read it quietly to yourself as I read it out loud. There may come an opportunity in the weeks ahead of us for us to proclaim it together as a church, but allow me to read it for you this morning. It reads, We confess the mystery and wonder of God made flesh. And rejoice in our great salvation through Jesus Christ, our Lord. With the Father and the Holy Spirit, the Son created all things, sustains all things, and makes all things new. Truly God, he became truly man. Two natures in one person. He was born of the Virgin Mary and lived among us, crucified, dead, and buried He rose on the third day, ascended to heaven, and will come again in glory and judgment. For us, he kept the law, atoned for sin, and satisfied God's wrath. He took our filthy rags and gave us his righteous robe. He is our prophet, priest, and king, building his church, interceding for us, and reigning over all things. Jesus Christ is Lord. We praise his holy name forever. Amen. Now we could spend several weeks unpacking all that this statement has to say in it. But alas, our primary focus 
today is the segment that says, truly God, he became truly man, two natures in one person. In a 2022 survey of self-professing evangelicals, they were asked whether they agreed or disagreed with this statement. Jesus was a great teacher, but he was not God. This was the question placed to self-professing evangelicals. Tragically, 43% of the respondents agreed with the statement that Jesus was a great teacher, but not God. So I don't want to assume anything. Whether you're here and you're exploring Christianity, maybe you're a young believer who knows this to be true, but maybe couldn't point to the, to the biblical reasons for why it's true, I want to make the case from the ground up. All right, so let's look today at several biblical examples of Jesus's divine nature, that he is fully God. And then we'll consider biblical examples of Jesus's human nature. And the following is just a sampling that I found in a dictionary of biblical themes, dictionary of Bible themes. There are a number of examples I left out, and every example that was listed had a host of verses with it, of which I've chosen maybe one to represent, even if I did. Okay, so this is a fast-forwarding through what you could spend many more hours studying. First, the New Testament writers affirm Jesus Christ's divinity. New Testament writers affirm it. Romans 9, 5, Paul is writing about the Jewish race, and he says, to them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ who is God over all. Blessed forever. Amen. Second, Jesus Christ precedes creation. In John chapter 17, verse 5, we read, Jesus praying, And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Jesus Christ is everlasting. In John chapter 8, Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Jesus Christ's manifestation of his glory, his glory in the transfiguration that we read about in Mark chapter 9, indicates his divinity. Verse 2 of Mark 9 says, After six days Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, led them up a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. His clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. One theologian, when he was reflecting on the transfiguration, called it a significant event in the revelation of Jesus' deity, that he was God. From one standpoint, it was a taste of things to come, a momentary transition from the concealing of his divine glory that marked his days on earth to the revealing of that glory that he will have when he returns and we see him as he is. And it was also a transition from humanity as it is now to what it will be on resurrection day. We can also see Jesus's divinity in the Old Testament. For example, in the divinity of the promised Messiah. Isaiah chapter 9 says, Unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, here it is, Mighty God, 
everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Jesus claimed divinity when he claimed to be one with the Father. John chapter 5, verses 17 and 18. Jesus answered them, My Father is working until now, and I am working. And the Jewish people understood what he meant by this. That's why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own Father, making himself equal with God. Or Jesus claimed his divinity when he demonstrated his authority to forgive sins, as we discussed a moment ago. His actions imply his divinity, like when he calmed the wind and the waves, something only God could do. Jesus Christ's resurrection confirmed his divinity. That's what Paul says in Romans chapter 1. He was declared to be the Son of God in power, according to the spirit of holiness, by what? His resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ, our Lord. In fact, Jesus' names and titles also point to his divinity. So, for example, when Jesus Christ is called the judge in John chapter 5 and other passages, you just need to know that in the Old Testament, final responsibility for judgment was assigned to God alone. When Jesus Christ says, I am, in John eleven twenty five and other I am statements, you just need to know, I am is the meaning of God's name in the Old Testament. When Jesus Christ is called Savior in Acts 5, 31 and other passages, you just need to know that according to the Old Testament, God alone can save. When Jesus Christ is called Lord in Romans 10, 9 and other passages, you need to know that Lord was equivalent to God's name in the Old Testament. And when Jesus Christ is called Creator in Colossians 1, 16 and other passages, you need to know in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Listen, the disciples recognized it. The demons recoiled because they knew it. Paul tells us one day, every tongue will confess it. And I hope you don't mind me telling you again this morning, Jesus is fully God. But he was also fully man. So let me share with you biblical examples of Jesus's human nature. Jesus Christ was a man by his own claims. His favorite title for himself was Son of Man. Matthew 8:20, Jesus said to him, "Foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head." He was called a man in statements made by others. When we finish studying Mark's gospel in chapter 15, the centurion who's standing there seeing him breathing his last said, "Truly, This man was the son of God. Jesus Christ shared in the general condition of all humanity when he assumed human nature. John 1, 14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We have seen his glory. Glory is of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Jesus had a human descent. Romans 1 says he was descended from David, according to the flesh. Jesus had a normal body, which could be handled and touched. He had a soul. He partook of the human experience in every way. When he was born, for example, Galatians 4, 4. When he grew and developed, for example, Luke 2, 52. When he was hungry in Mark 11. When he was thirsty on the cross. When he was tired, John 4, 6. When he slept, 
Mark 4, 38. When he was tempted, Mark 1. When he suffered, Hebrews 5. And when he died, Mark 15. Jesus, after he rose from the dead, still had human characteristics. So, for example, in John 20, he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands. Put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. And the returning Christ will also retain his humanity. In Acts chapter 1, verse 11, we read that as Jesus was ascending, the angel said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go. So the the risen Jesus with his human body, they saw ascend on the clouds. And scripture promises, promises us that when he returns, it will be this same Jesus. And finally, it should be noted that Jesus Christ was a sinless human being. He was a sinless human being. Hebrews 4.15 says, We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Now let me quickly note, sinlessness does not make Jesus Christ less human. We know that sin degrades humanity. So you could argue that Jesus was the truest human that ever lived. I hope you don't mind me telling you again, Jesus is fully human. Now, I hope we've done the work of establishing Christ's two natures. He does it all. How does it all then work together in one person? Two natures in one person. That is a key to an orthodox understanding of Jesus. It's sometimes hard for our minds to wrap around this mystery, this concept. So for an analogy, the reformer John Calvin once used a teaching example about the human soul and the human body. Now hear me, all analogies break down somewhere. But this is, I think, helpful. He said, the soul is not the body, and the body is not the soul. Therefore, some things are said exclusively of the soul that can never apply to the body. And some things are said about the body that, again, in no way fit the soul. However, we say things about the whole man that cannot refer except inappropriately to either soul or body separately. There again, sometimes the characteristics of the mind are transferred to the body and those of the body sometimes transferred to the soul. Yet he who consists of these parts is one, not many. Such expressions, these ways of talking about body, mind, soul, and one person, tell us that one person in man composed of two elements is joined together, and that there are two diverse underlying natures that make up that person. So we all know intuitively this idea of our soul and our body, and yet we are one. We are united in who we are. Again, analogies break down, but if it helps you to kind of begin to conceptualize some of this. The scriptures speak about Christ in a similar way. Sometimes they attribute to Christ 
what must be referring only to his humanity. Okay, we're talking about his human nature and his divine nature now. Sometimes they speak of what belongs uniquely to his divinity. And sometimes scripture speaks of what embraces both natures, but fits neither one of them on its own. And they so earnestly express this union of the two natures that is in Christ as sometimes to interchange them. Now, if your head hurts after all of that, join the crowd. That's why we sang together, come behold the wondrous mystery. Understanding Christ's two natures in one person is a mystery. But thankfully, there are some safe boundaries of orthodoxy that have been established in response to heresies that clearly transgress the biblical lines of teaching. So in my church history, um, the professor would often say he, he liked to travel in a channel of the safe waters of orthodoxy and that you can go adrift and you can make a shipwreck of your faith on either shore. But the lines, the boundaries of safe waters of orthodoxy are what have been established in church history by the refuting of heresies that deny some aspect of who Christ really is. So let's take a brief survey of Christological heresies. Heresies about Jesus. How did the church establish those channel markers for the safe waters of orthodoxy? Now, the material I'm sharing is found in the back of the ESV study Bible under the topical heading called A Brief Survey of Christological Heresies. Now, these six historical heresies are found on page 2519. Uh, We had a few ESV study Bibles. We had some CSB study Bibles, and we have more on order. I encourage you to get a study Bible as some of these things can be very helpful. But for your sake, here is the chart of heresies concerning the person of Christ. First, we have Ebionism, which denies the deity of Christ. There's Arianism, which denies the fullness of the deity of Christ. And I'm going to give a little one-sentence explainer or so on each of these. The third heresy is Docetism, which we talked about a little bit ago, which denies the humanity of Christ. And then there's Apollinarianism, which denies the fullness of the humanity of Christ. Nestorianism denies the unity of the natures in one person, while Eutychianism denies the distinction of the natures such that there is no way of knowing that there is any difference between the two natures. So consider Ebionism with me first. It was taught by a small Jewish Christian sect in the first century. They believed that the power of God came upon a human. Okay, so this human existed, was born just like every other human was born. And the power of God came on that man named Jesus to enable him to fulfill the divine, uh, to fulfill the messianic role. But Christ was not God. So they denied God's, Jesus's deity. Arianism was a more influential heresy that came about in the early 4th century. And it still exists today. Hear me. It still exists today in cults like the Jehovah's Witnesses. They deny the eternal, fully divine nature of Jesus Christ. Arius believed Jesus was the first and greatest of created beings. 
His denial of the full deity of Jesus was rejected in the Council of Nicaea in 325. And it was at that council that Athanasius showed that according to Scripture, Jesus is fully God, being of the same essence as the Father. Docetism, which I referred to at the beginning of the message, came about in the second century. And the Greeks thought very negatively about the physical realm. The prevailing view of the elites at that time, it would have been thought that Jesus and his deity would have had to have like tainted himself to have real flesh. John clearly condemned this view in his letter. Now, incidentally, I think that this is where a lot of drifting from orthodoxy actually begins. People trying to soften the teaching of Scripture to not be as offensive to the culture of the day. We ought to be very wary of efforts to make Jesus in our image instead of being conformed into his. And then there was Apollinarianism, which denies the fullness of the humanity of Christ. Now, this dude, Apollinarius, was from the 4th century also. What was going on back then, right? And he believed humans have bodies, animal souls, and rational spirits. That's kind of the makeup of the human being, the body, the soul, and the, the spirit. And he, he thought that the divine logos in Christ took the place of the rational spirit of that human being. The problem with that is that if Jesus is only, as it were, two-thirds of a human, then the full redemption of fully human people like us is lost. He has to be fully man. The fifth heresy was Nestorianism, which emphasized the distinction between the natures of Christ so much that Christ was made to appear as though he was two persons in one body. And then finally, Eutychianism stressed the unity of the natures to the point where there was no way of determining any distinction between them. And Christ was thought to be some sort of new entity with one nature greater than mere man, while fully God in some sort of new and novel way. In 451 AD, the leaders of the church assembled at Chalcedon outside of the modern-day Constantinople, and they wrote a creed affirming both Jesus' full humanity and full deity with his two natures united in one person. And in that creed, all six of these heresies are dealt with. This creed, formated at Chalcedon, became the church's foundational statement on Jesus Christ. In plain English, the ESV Study Bible summarizes the creed with these four simple statements. Here they are. Jesus Christ is fully and completely divine. Number two, Jesus Christ is fully and completely human. Number three, The divine and human natures of Christ are distinct. And number four, the divine and human natures of Christ are completely united in one person. These four things are the safe waters of orthodoxy for us today, which brings me to the application, which I'm calling Nicaea, Chalcedon, and you. (laughs) Nicaea, Chalcedon, and you. Like, Okay, what about, what about today? We're in 2023, not 451. Historic creeds, though, and even modern statements, like the one I just read from the Ligonier Statement on Christology, what they do is they affirm biblical truths in a way that set channel markers 
of the safe waters of orthodoxy for Christians. They teach the church how to talk about the two natures of Jesus without falling into error. So to bring it all home to you and me, I hope you have seen that we need to take up the study of things like this, not only so that we can refute the Arianism of the Jehovah's Witness knocking at our door about Jesus being a created being. We have to know that he is not created. But also, we ourselves must be crystal clear in our belief about who Jesus is. Today, if you watch the Super Bowl commercials, you will see multi-million dollar ads that talk about Jesus. He gets us is the campaign. And insofar as it gets people thinking about Jesus, I would praise the Lord. But the danger is that the Jesus to whom we all must fly is not the Jesus of marketers or a Jesus of our own making, but the Jesus of the Bible. Oh, sure, he does get us. He was fully human. But the real questions of importance are two this morning. Do you get him? And does he know you? Do you get him? And does he know you? Unorthodox views of Jesus, as close as they may sound to real Christianity because of the religious jargon that's involved in it, biblical language, we're talking about Jesus, right? Are we? That's the question you need to ask in your conversations with friends that are neighbors that are in cults. We may be saying the same word, but we're not talking about the same Jesus. They're shrouded in biblical language. And these are the kinds of views that get someone all the way to eternity standing before our Lord Jesus and having him say, I never knew you. This is why the elders encourage you to use tools like the New City Catechism to learn doctrine. Catechisms are not just for children. It has questions and answers that can help you and your family and your friends think rightly about these things, like questions 21 through 23. It's also why the elders recommend that you teach your children with truths in songs like the song Totally God and Totally Man by Bob Coughlin and John Althoff. Or take home the hymnal and sing the classic hymn Hark the Herald Angels Sing and learn about the incarnation of Jesus Christ. Or you could learn the newer song like the one we learned this morning, Come Behold the Wondrous Mystery by Matt Boswell. Allow these truths of doctrine to sink into your soul through song. It's also why the elders are planning to incorporate both historic confessions like the Apostles' Creed and perhaps newer theologically orthodox statements like the one I read this morning in our Sunday morning worship services from time to time for us to recite as believers, not only because it links our faith to what the Christians of the past have believed, like the faith once for all delivered to the saints, but because doctrine matters. It matters what we think about Jesus and what we believe about him for the sake of our souls. So if you're here today and you're not a Christian, this message has confronted you with the truth about a man named Jesus who was born in Bethlehem from the town of Nazareth that claimed to be 
God. That he was a human being is an attested fact of history. That he claimed to be God is attested by the written accounts of his life. I suppose that one could argue that the man Jesus of Nazareth was crazy. Some people in his day thought he was crazy. They said he was demon-possessed, like a megalomaniac convinced that he was God. Or perhaps I suppose you could conclude that Jesus was a liar. He was just lying, deceiving people and the masses into believing some mistruth about him. You must admit that neither of those two options make him a good man, and especially not a good prophet like other religions might claim Jesus to be. No, as the classic apologetic goes, he is either lunatic, liar, or he is who he claimed to be, and he is Lord. He is God in the flesh, and he is worthy to receive worship like Jesus did when he walked on the earth. Friend, today the eternity of your soul hangs on the fact that Jesus is who he claimed to be, fully God and fully man. So I invite you to do business with those claims today.